Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The story of Richmond's AFL success in recent years tends to numb the pain of almost four decades of anger and frustration for the Tigers and their giant army of supporters. But prior to 2017, even the most faithful might have wondered if that premiership drought would ever end. One of the leaders behind the strategy that ultimately took Richmond to elusive premiership glory and in doing so cemented the club as a powerhouse on and off the field was CEO Brendan Gale. This is the Playmakers Playbook brought to you by BuildCorp, celebrating 30 years of continual learning and successful partnering. Hello, I'm Nick McArdle, host of the Playmakers Playbook. If you want to be a better leader in business, sport or the everyday, or if you simply love a good story, this podcast is for you. Brendan Gale played 244 games over an 11-year career. In retirement, he had a taste of corporate life before heading up the AFL Players Association and eventually returning to Richmond, where he's been the boss since 2009. Regarded as one of the brightest minds in the game, you're about to hear how his vision courage and belief helped usher in a new era for the Tigers and with membership topping 100,000 and one of the most impressive business models in the game, perhaps the story has only just begun. The Tigers are going to win the Premiership in 37-year premiership drought broken and a man who was present and, and felt the pain of that drought for so many years, first as a player and later as CEO. Brendan Gale, welcome to the Playmakers Playbook. Uh, good to be with you, Nick. September 30, 2017. Um, I reckon that's probably a day that you'd be happy to relive over and over and over again. Oh, it was a magical day and uh, I, I made the mistake of, of uh, not long after describing it as the perhaps the best day of my life, uh, much to the chagrin of my wife <laughs> who uh, and my children. But I think what I meant was that, um, you know, of course those milestones are, are really important and um, personal memories, but, but to actually share it with everyone, to share it with your kids and to share it with your wife and family made it, um, and all those who'd been on the journey with you was, was very special. Look, it was a huge drought, um, We'd been a three final series in a row and, and got bumped out um, pretty early each time and and 16 was a year we went backwards. So to respond in that way, um, but still under great pressure, was just a huge, well, relief first up. Um, it was an incredible moment, a very emotional one. And as I said, you had felt, you know, a large part of that premiership 
drought, 244 games for the club between 1990 and 2001. Then you went off and you did your own thing at the at the Players Association as CEO. Uh, and then back at the club, I think you'd been back, what, for nine years in 2017. Uh, that, that must have almost had like a spiritual effect on you. You were part of the club who'd had so much frustration and sadness over that period. Yeah, look, I never I never expected to be back at the club. Certainly it's not a role ever coveted. Um, when I did retire back in 01, I, in fact, I went away and worked for the law for a few years in commercial law and then went to the Players Association and, um, and I worked in a particular part of the law that almost required me to work and live overseas for a few years, and, and which I... Um, look forward to because you know getting out of Melbourne and doing something different, and but it just didn't work out that way. And I found myself back in back in back in football through the PA and then back at Richmond. Yeah, but but clearly having some association with the club meant they had that emotional connection, um, and that was a motivation for me coming back. But also there was a there was a real sort of intellectual challenge of you know I had my. I had my experiences and perspective of my time in the club, but also had my views about what I thought it took to to run a, a club successfully. Um, and so to have the intellectual challenge and also the emotional challenge was very attractive. So um, I thought it was going to kill me probably half a dozen times along the way. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a, it was a long journey you know, uh, from 10 to 17 and we had um, lots of really hard, lonely moments but it made 17 all the more gratifying. You are renowned as, um, in some ways, I think is a bit of a, a visionary uh, in the game, but certainly one of its uh, its great leaders at the moment. I'm interested to know if you wind it all the way back to growing up in Tassie and then even uh, throughout your playing careers, can you, can you give us some of the people uh, who shaped you as a leader and some of the philosophies that you've adopted over that time. Can you walk me through some of that? Oh, I, yeah, I, I think so. Like growing up in Tasmania, I had a you know, wonderful, free-spirited childhood where you could get involved in just about any sport you want to. Really, that's probably only football and cricket, to be honest. <laughs> a bit of surfing, surplus saving. And, um, and so uh, great facilities and so. But, but there was never that real strong ambition or aspiration to to play AFL football. I mean, I was a, I was a good footballer at, at, all through the underages, but but it was almost like that stretch of water, that bass straight, that that um, was a bridge too far for a lot of young athletes in Tassie. And um, it's why David Boone was so important in terms of cricket, um, you know, demonstrating a pathway. And, and whilst there, there, were, there were footballers, I guess, that did that as well, it was just never a real... Strong ambition. It just seemed too too distant. I had a brother, eighty months older, that that was a good football. He got drafted Fitzroy, and he blazed a trail. And I thought, well, if he can, I I can. And um, I was a bit of a wild young kid at the time, so I knuckled down and got drafted. And and but what what I, look I, what what I will say is, I, I mean, I've learned my greatest lessons, I think, as a leader through through what I call the the University of Football, the University of Sport, the furnace of sport. And I'm lucky enough to be relatively well-educated, um, but I've learned more about myself, about human nature, about some of those great life forces and life lessons through sport than I could ever dream at university. And so and I think perhaps the most important one is sport, and particularly elite sport, is an honesty business. It, it demands honesty. Um 
you can't kid yourself. You can't fake it. You can't, you know, if, if you if you if you want to make excuses for poor performances or blame someone else or or um, you know, you won't acknowledge the facts and you won't improve. So you get tossed out. So it demands honesty, and and, and I think that what that is is formed self awareness. And I think self awareness is is a non negotiable attribute of leadership. So just yeah, I, I just think I'm lucky enough to, have, I guess, for, I guess forged have my values forged, particularly around self awareness in the furnace of furnace of sport and footy. I imagine uh, maybe in a family environment too. I think you know you, your dad was an all Australian, from what I understand. Your grandfather uh, played a handful of games for for Richmond as well back in nineteen twenty four. Did you did you have some of that rubbing off even during your childhood? Look, I knew. Look, certainly we 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 uh, we played sport, and you know we had all the opportunities to play sport. And, and look, I, I was on the understanding dad played at a very high level. Um, as you mentioned, Nick, but he was—he was like a lot of fathers of that generation. He was probably probably a distant father. He'd never—he'd work, he'd come home. I couldn't remember too many times where he'd kick the footy with dad or he'd come watch games. Um, and that's not a slight on him; it's mm. just sort of the way it was. Um, and and he, you know, he died in '02, but on his deathbed, it's probably something he regretted. My parents ended up divorcing, I think, at about when I was twelve or thirteen, anyway. Um, and uh, and. I was from a large family. That's my brother became even more important, I think, um, um, in that respect. So, and 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 probably um, eight children, um, and mum looked after us. So, in our eyes, you know, our mum's a she's a saint. She's a tower of strength, and and what she, what she sacrificed and her selflessness and and a tenacity to go about and you know provide everything she could for us was a huge um, factor in my life and all our lives. You do tend to learn bits from your, your mum, don't you? You, the, the, yeah. you don't probably realise at the time, but they come back and uh, they, they have rubbed off in ensuing years. Were you disappointed when you didn't get drafted by Fitzroy? I think you, because Michael was at Fitzroy, um, and I think yeah. up until that very night, you thought you were going to go to Fitzroy. Yeah, he was. It was the... Um, uh, he did get drafted at Fitzroy, sorry, and 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 I was disappointed at first instance, and it was one of the only probably times that you know probably my dad get, did get involved uh, in in my career because I'd had a year of university at Hobart. Um, at the end of that year, I came back home to Burnie, which is you know four hours away, and, and my old team Burnie played the statewide league. They just entered the new state competition, so I decided just to just have a break for study and play. Ended up getting drafted that year, sorry, end of that year, but. Just prior to the draft, I knew there were a few scouts down watching, and particularly Fitzroy. Um, and Fitzroy indicated to me on the eve of the '87 draft, which was the second ever national draft, that they were going to pick me with their third pick, and, and you're my brother, which I was looking forward to. Um, but unbeknownst to me, Richmond swooped and they had an earlier pick, so I went to them at pick three, which is pick 27. And I remember. Um, uh, my father, you know, I, was, I dropped the lip a little bit because I was looking forward to, you know, coming and join my brother. And and he said to me a couple of things. He said, firstly, he said, you're not good enough to be dropping your lip, so just be grateful you're not drafted to start with. <laughs> um, and, you know, you might be good enough, but just be grateful and get on with it. And the second thing is, he said, um, he said, don't tell your brother this, but he said, if you are good enough, and that's a big if, there's every chance 
you know, you're going to go to a club that has the chance to play in big games, the grand finals, MCG, and there'll probably some question marks over Fitzroy's viability even at that stage. Now, this was 87. So Richmond had played in the grand final in 82 and won at 80. So it wasn't that much earlier, but I didn't know it was going to be 37 yeah. years. <laughs> so, you had to wait a while. You had to wait a while. So, uh, <laughs> and, and I didn't even get there as a player. It was a... It was as a CEO, so you but played, we got there. You played. You played one prelim, at least one prelim final. Two, pre- so two I played two, yeah, two two final series in '95 and 2001, um, and we won. We won. Uh, we got to two prelims. Yeah, yeah, and got bumped out. The um, I just want to go back to what you were saying about self awareness, and and I guess that's kind of linked to humility as well, and um, when you think about Instagram and and Twitter, and you know that 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 sort of you know, culture of needing and wanting to be seen that uh, that perhaps the younger player is uh, tied up in at the moment. Is that a, a difficult thing for a young player? Would you say that maybe back in the day it was a little bit easier to be humble and, and self-aware than perhaps it is nowadays? Look, it, it is certainly a different generation and these are very different times. And I remember, um, I remember, gee, it must have been 21 or 22 um, so part of a couple of years, but still relatively immature. Um, but those are the days when football writers were football writers. They wrote about the game, and the, and they didn't they didn't um, just slam individuals as much. But I remember um, Patrick Smith wrote an article, who is the chief football writer for the Age at the time. I think he said to them, "If Richmond have got any chance of beating Hawthorne next week, they want to hope Brendan Gale gets lost in the car park before the game." <laughs> That'll take you back. That'll, that'll bring oh. you back down to earth. Well, it took me about two weeks to get over that. I swear to God. Now, now it's one of the funniest things. Um, that, uh, but you know, that didn't happen much. Now it happens all the time. I mean, it, the game is subject to that much scrutiny. The the the, the football writer, the program, the social media, and I do worry. Um, um, and and we try and caution our players, and, and the fact, you know, they do grow up faster. The kids these days, I think, but they still have thin skins. And um, but at the same time, we also, you know, there's been a real breakthrough in the way I guess to develop players and develop leadership. Is we we do encourage them to be who they want to be, rather than coming fitting into some sort of prototype athlete player and just fit in. Um, and sometimes encourage them to be who they are requires them to fully express themselves as well. Hmm. So there's a there's a balance, like all things. Take it back to your playing days. Who who were some of the really great leaders uh, you played with? Um, you know, whether it be captains or you know, it doesn't have to be captains within the team. Um, and and what made them such great leaders? What what was the the hallmark of a great leader? Well, I I, I was a very sort of old fashioned player in that I always wanted to play for the coach. Um, and, you know, I accepted what the coach said at face value and I'll just go out and, and I want to play for the coach. And I think that was probably the fact that, um, you know, my father left when I was probably 12. I'd, I'd look for that father figure a little bit. So it wasn't too hard for me to find leadership and inspiration in, in all my coaches to start with. Um, and I was lucky enough to have, you know, like I remember you know, Kevin Bartlett. Um, now, Kevin Bartlett, was the coach at probably the club's lowest point in its history when it had to beg for money and was bought, you know, borderline and sold. But he was incredibly positive and supportive of his players, always find a positive to encourage and 
And I understand that came from Tommy Hafey. You know, Tommy was a very positive. Alan Jeans was just an incredible figure. Um, powers of oratory. Um, John Northey would never appraise a team in t- terms of individual performances. It was always about the team, always about commitment to the team. And you know, Jeff Gershon came along, and and, and uh, Danny Frawley was like a like a big brother. So the coaches always um, always say R- Robbie Walls very. You know, just absolutely brutally honest, brutally honest, never sugarcoat things, just just give it to you straight, which is all you wanted as well, so clear communications. But in terms of um, some of the players, I mean, you know, we probably didn't have the success that we would have wanted. Um, and it's a shame because some of the players I played with are really, really good players but didn't get the box office exposure attraction and, um, just, you know, Matthew Richardson's passion to win and competitiveness and guys like Duncan Kellaway's courage. I mean, not many people would even know who Duncan Kellaway is, but he's not, you know, the top half a dozen bravest players to ever play the game. Not many people would know that, but, you know, we saw that week in, week out. You know, not hard to find examples to inspire you. Sometimes it, that, that high profile, um, you know, a player can have equal ability uh, in an underperforming team, as as, yeah. as in a as in a successful team, it'll always be the guys in the successful team that, that get that high profile. Yeah, indeed. And sometimes, I mean, you know, Francis Burke, some some of the Richmond old past players, always very supportive and always around the club. But you know, Francis is one of the most exalted players of all time. Well, certainly in our club, you know, five flags. And but he said sometimes it's just timing, and there's there's guys here that would be the equal of any players I played with, you know, but they just they just didn't get the opportunity. And some, that's just, it is what it is. Let's just fast forward now uh, to, to when you came back to the club as, as CEO. And I read a recent headline uh, which said, um, Brendan Gale, the off-field mastermind behind Richmond's success, when the chapter is written on the Tigers' current golden era, the appointment of Brendan Gale as Richmond boss would be a good starting point. What do you think it was that you brought to the club that, uh, that sparked the turnaround? Look, I think I had, I think I had um, the corporate knowledge, the institutional knowledge of the club and, and some of the things that, you know, when you get a bit older in your playing career and a bit more sort of um, when you develop your career, critical thinking and evaluation, you say, geez, could we have done that better? Could we have handled that? But when you're a young guy, you don't have the right to make those evaluations. You just get on with it. So... I had that, but also I had five years of the Players Association, which in hindsight was a really valuable experience because you're dealing with, well, probably 16 clubs back then, 16 clubs, but you're dealing with clubs often over disagreements and disputes and dealing with conflict and sometimes you're in clubs and uh, they've had great wins or bad losses and you're dealing with different styles of administration and, and just, I mean, there's, there's a pattern emerging the clubs that continue to stay ahead of the pack and those that didn't and sort of reactive and chasing their tail and and I guess that further informed my beliefs about what I think I need to do. And I think that the thing the thing the my thesis was that the club hadn't modernized, it hadn't evolved. Um, it hadn't evolved and the and the and the methods that the Tiger family thought was successful for the 60s, 70s and 80s. It was almost that ruthless pursuit of success that is no tolerance for mediocrity. Um, that that um, 
things had evolved and it required new management and new leadership. And that was you need focus, you need alignment, and you need everyone to be on the same page, and you need rational decision making by consensus. So you need to get you need to get the club aligned on the same page. Um, then you need to build the business in these increasingly commercial times, you know, an arms race, so to speak. You need to build the business, revenue really mattered. And they're the two enabling additions to then support and sustain footy. Whereas I reckon a lot of the time we went footy first, you know, just sat the coach, bring in a new coach, bring in the new player, and it's just... So we had to get those two enabling additions, preconditions right first to ultimately support and then sustain performance. So I think, I think, you know, as I said, having my own knowledge and my experience of the PA um, helped shape that. Um, now, it wasn't perfectly linear, and as I said, there were some ups and downs along the way, but that was the general strategy and we're able to tell that story to our people and once again having a connection with a club allowed me to prosecute that I guess with more maybe credibility and it bought me some time and it bought us some time and slowly we started to build off the field strength finance started to make finals getting knocked out and and I think that's I think that's what it brought. That takes some courage too because as I understand it, you set uh, membership goals. You were quite yeah. vocal. What did you say? You wanted to win three premierships in the next... Three, three, just three finals. Three yeah. final series. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. In five years, zero deaths and 75,000 members. So, in a sense, you, you're putting your head on the chopping block there because you're saying, well, if, if I don't meet these, then... Yeah, you know, I'm at your mercy. So that takes yeah. some courage in itself. Well, I, I, once again, I, my understanding was that Richmond had always, in its DNA, Richmond was an ambitious club. But I think it, at various times its ambition had been misplaced. And so, you know, making three final series in those first five years to start with, I mean, that was ambitious back then. Yeah. And that's where we're coming from. And so I guess I wanted to... I want to demonstrate to our people, our constituents, look, you know, we're going to set ambitious goals. We're going to, we're going to re-energise this club and create some ambitious goals. But, but rather than ambition and goals based on hype, here's the roadmap. And you're, it's been carefully thought through and these are the metrics and these are the signposts. So this is what success looks like. And it's, it's broader than just football. It's not about wins and losses right now. It's about this. It's about a commercial strength. It's about a balance sheet. It's about a membership. Um, and and once people saw that, they said, "Well, okay. Well, that's 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 the journey. That's the plan. That's the goals. We will we will get on board. We'll give it. We'll give this bike a go. We'll give it. The, and and I think that's what we did. Um, I think you know we're I guess we're open and transparent, but based on based on real plans rather than rhetoric. So a couple of premierships later and, and I think you, you, your uh, membership was, well, almost 37,000 in 2009. What are, you, what are you topping now with your membership? 
Well, pre-COVID, we were we were uh, ninety-seven thousand. So we've we've cracked hundred thousand and eighteen and nineteen, and we would have expected to go past hundred and ten this year. Yep. So. Um, so, so that's a fair that, measure of success. Yeah, it's a fair measure, and premierships do help. But we're breaking membership records, importantly, before the premierships came. Yeah, yeah. It was at the back of telling the story, taking our people with us. It's about communication, giving them a sense of involvement, customer service, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, you were in charge when Damien Hardwick w- was appointed, um, but it was really that 2016 you felt that you really had to dig in. There was a moment for the club, do we keep changing coaches or do you work out that you've got a good bloke in there, you just need to change a bit of structure around? Can yeah. you uh, explain the thinking around that in, in 2016 and, yeah. and what you went through? Done a lot of analysis and sometimes, as we all know, history has a habit of repeating itself. And unfortunately, Richard Matt was the case for the wrong reasons because between 1982, sorry, between 1980, Premiers, 81, sacked the coach. 1982, lost the grand final, Francis Burke coach, sacked the coach. Um, 13 coaches between that period and up to David Hardwick with no significant improvement performance in terms of premierships over, over the journey. So it wasn't getting the results we're looking for. And we always talked about, you know, we've got, we've got an organisation alignment, building the business, the preconditions, and um, and not go this football first um, um, sort of approach. So, and, and we always felt as a board, you know, whilst we're making progress through 10, 11, 12, 13, it was almost perfectly linear. We always thought that, that, that our test will come when we drop off performance, when the baseball bats come out. Uh, and that's when the questions will be asked of this board and this club. And they did come out in 2016. And they, they come out. They come out. Uh, you know, it was so it was like a scene out of the Holy Grail, Monty Python. There were Judean people's fronts and people's fronts of Judea, and there were factions and coups. Anyway, and it was really, ugly. and of course, the media get a taste of that, and away they go. It's a great Richmond story. Richmond's bitterly disappointing AFL season on the field is threatening to tear the club apart's office. The importance of, of strong board and strong leadership and strong governance really came through because, you know, Peggy and a board, um, despite all the pressure, it was like, okay, um, is he a good coach? Uh, yeah, he's a good coach. He's a good coach because we've got a three final series. That of itself is a measure of progress. Now, it's not where we want to be, but fundamentally he's a good coach. No guarantees. Okay, so what's worked? Gather the evidence. Do what we have to do. Um, let's make decisions based on, on fact, on data. Let's not be reactionary. Let's not be populist. Let's, let's ignore the noise and let's just get on with it. Um, and that gave me and my team, my administration, I guess, the strength and the confidence to go about our job and make the changes we need um, to get rid of a fairly robust review. But it was a ro- review for football. It was a review we did together. And we made some changes. But I think coming out the other side, it really strengthened that sort of bond of trust. And, um, and then the rest is history. 
Exactly. Well, two premierships in three years since. What uh, would you say is uh, the leadership takeout in that? If, if someone's listening to this, like, okay, well, to boil that down, what was the leadership that you showed in that situation? Number of attributes, but I think firstly, if you look at our, if you look at our, I guess our collective leadership as a group, I'm talking board administration. It was, I think, uh, selflessness. Um, often there's a lot of egos in footy and often decisions are, are made, bit rash decisions because they're often self-indulgent. You know, I'm gonna, we're going to show his boss, we're going to make a big call, we're going to make decisions, you know. But you know, this didn't require that. I mean, to sit back, gather the evidence, um, this wasn't about individuals or personalities. Um, um, so there's a sense of, of selflessness and also humility. Um, that we haven't got all the answers, let's find them, um, which we went about and did with you know with some recommendations that were put in place. I think um, I think in um, I think in the context of AFL football, which is a highly publicly scrutinised sport, I think just having grit as well. And there wouldn't be too many days go by when someone tells you you know got your job or I could do it better or this or that. And that's just the nature of our game. That's what ultimately sustains our game. Yeah. The extent of our fans' passions. But it does get, it, does, it can wear you down um, um, unless you have a strong sense of who you are, um, which is another attribute and what you're trying to do and, um, and, and strong belief in your plan. So, yeah, I think probably just selflessness, making decisions for the greater good, not through self-indulgence, I think humility, self-awareness, grief, resilience. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think the thing that probably tied all that together is, and the thing that probably defines our club, is we've got a really strong sense of shared leadership. is isn't about Peggy. This isn't about me. Um, it's, a, it's, it's all of us. It's all the, the key leaders have, have, have you know, uh, have a shared understanding of, of you know, what it takes to lead and, and how to lead. Yeah, it gets back to, and most of the people I've spoken to on this podcast have talked about values, but but having the values that you live, not just having them you know, written on a wall somewhere in a change room or a, or a, or a weights room. You actually got to you know, walk the walk. Um, let's talk about how the game looks out of uh, the back of what we're going through at the moment. And obviously, you know, it's, a, it's a, going to be a strange season when you guys do uh, kick off and the fixtures were announced this week. But um, at the moment, there's a $13 million uh, salary cap. Um, I think the average player salary is $363,000. What, what does that look like going forward? What's a sustainable figure in the future? Because surely it can't remain at those levels, can it? I think the short answer is, Nick, right now we don't know. But there, there, were, there is going to have to be a significant recess. Well, there, there is underway at the moment. Um, and I think what, what, what the revenue, what the environment looks like in terms of revenue is just unclear. It's unclear. Um, you know, I'm mean, clear we don't have crowds this year. I mean, it's possible there may not be crowds next year. Um, unless a vaccine is found. Um, so, uh, and even if crowds are, crowds are permitted, maybe maybe our be- human behaviour might change. Maybe people are less willing to go to big crowds and big games and, you know, maybe that impact the size of the crowds anyway. 
Um, you know, the AFL um, had to secure a debt facility of $600 million, um, to provide urgent liquidity to clubs. Um, they'll draw down in a fair chunk of that. That's going to be re- repaid back. So there's a debt burden, mm. which means dividends are reduced. So there's so much uncertainty about revenue. Um, but what the AFL can control, they can leverage down and control cost. And so that that's what has to happen. Um, you know, clearly, clearly the players have had to sort of um, um, take on board salary cuts at this stage. Our football departments, um, we've had a soft cap on football department expenditure has been cut significantly and, and will be cut again next year. So what's that? It's like a million... That's nine point yeah. seven. It's called a ten million now. So that was cut by a million in about a week. And the suggestions are we might have to find another two or three, four million that could be reduced forty percent inside twelve months. Wow. And so when you think about when you think about expenditure, I mean most of that's headcount, most of that's people. Mm. And so I've never been in an environment certainly my professional life, where I, so much is unknown. Uh, so much is unknown. Um, and uh, But there will be there will be a reset of the, of the football economy. Uh, you know, we, I just can't go into specifics, I guess, at this stage. Um, so you take a step back, and this is more a philosophical question, I guess, but did you almost need to have that? Was it, was it kind of getting a bit much? Was there almost too much money in the game? No, look, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think, I think that you know, pre-COVID, you know, but for this unprecedented global pandemic, arguably, you could say the game has never been in better shape. Um, you know, record, record ratings at a time when free-to-air TV is in decline, record digital audiences growing exponentially, record attendances, record membership. Um, uh, we're a club that turns over over $90 million, you know. So from our perspective, um, you know, the game couldn't be better. We were managing ourselves prudently and sustainably. Um, but having said that, there are some clubs that are that are really struggling at the margins and really do, um, really do, you know, benefit from significant financial support for the AFL. And so this is probably highlight of the golf. Mm. Um, now, is that sustainable long term? Um, I don't know. On probably pure financial terms, it probably isn't. But those clubs, are the, some of those challenging clubs are themselves, are worth a lot to the competition because of the history and the rivalry and the fixture, except so there's swings and trade offs and roundabouts, and we sort of accept that as a, as a competition. Whether we continue to do so, I don't, I, I don't know. It's it's um it's above my pay grade. <laughs> and coincidentally, um, and I guess it's perhaps more than coincidence. You, you might even like to say that it was good management. Um, back in February, you kind of went down this track, didn't you? You modelled what the game might look like or what your club might look like if there was a sudden uh, crash in in finances or you know attendance, membership, perhaps. You, you really drilled down into that. Yeah, we, we did. We've got a regular board consultant who comes in and, and just, you know, gets the board out of that traditional sort of governance thinking into more futuristic planning, <coughs> strategic planning, sort of game planning, um, 
um, wargaming, etc. So yeah, he said, look, off that was our it was our first board meeting this year, which was in February, and clearly off the back of a premiership and the business is in pretty good health. But he said, let's just park that. You know, it's probably fair to say the way the economy's looking. The next ten years is going to be a recession, if not a depression. I mean, history suggests that probably will be the case. And just as a hypothetical exercise, let's 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 just assume our revenues will, will drop by 20% across the board. How will that impact our, our business? How will that impact our club? How will we continue to fund our programs, our VFL, our, our AFL women's, et cetera, et cetera? And, and importantly, what are the things that we'd want to preserve and how we're going to come out of it? And, um, and so, and, and yeah, not for one moment, <laughs> we ever expect in almost a month's time, the world will be shut down. Um, so, so yes, it, it, um, I mean, nothing came of there. There was no specific initiative we put in place to protect ourselves all too soon. But, but what, we, what we did do was about seven years ago, we, we took real deliberate steps to diversify our, our business because, you know, we, 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 most of our revenues are sold dependent on the fortunes of our footy team. And with Richmond, a club like ours, with what we call an MCG economy, it very much is a boom bust. Um, uh, when things are going well, you're filling the stadium, reserve seats, premium prices, etc. When things aren't going so, it's tough. So we we, we established a, a business called Lion Leisure, which manages health and aquatic facilities on behalf of local government, another Richmond Institute, which is an education with Swinburne. And and they've. They're, those initiatives have been fruitful. They, they've allowed us to withstand, to a certain extent, the current pandemic, and we will still lose a lot of skin. But, um, but yeah, the current environment has probably vindicated that decision, which was made probably seven, eight years ago. Yeah, and and I guess um, a bit of success, although as you say, it was seven or eight years ago. But does a bit of success give you a bit of time as a leader to? to look a bit longer term and, and so that you haven't got your face up against the day-to-day, do you actually get time to sit back and, and you know, what is the long-term vision and, and is that opportunity important for leadership? No, definitely it is. I mean, you've got to think um, is the now game and very much now we are in the now game and we're trying to sort of, it's, it's sort of, you know, hand-to-hand combat getting our club through this and out the other side and, but yeah, look, there, there, there is the long game, and there is how you want to position your club, and um, and um, you know what's your, you know, what's going to be the, what's going to be the role of sport in 10, 15 years' time. And I, I think sports becoming an increasingly important, not just sporting, but cultural, social institution in Australia, and at a time when rightly or wrongly, people are having less faith in government, in religion, and in some of these other institutions, sport is looming large in people's minds and it's great traction. So I think that's a great opportunity. So we think about what that looks like and the responsibilities. And But it starts with recognising, before you start reinventing wheels, what are the things that you do well as a club now and that you want to ring fence, protect, and almost codify? Um, so, you know, we don't have another 37 years in the wilderness. So when we can sort of hand over the Richmond way of doing things to the next generation. Yeah, I guess that 
principle is applicable to to business as well when you're trying to build a successful business. So if you're sitting there and and thinking about what things look like in eight or ten or or fifteen years time, I do have to ask. There's a, a thought that you may well be the boss of the AFL in eight or ten or fifteen years time. Is is that on your agenda? It's it's been talked about. It has been talked about, Nick. It's, it's always speculation, and uh, and uh, yeah, you, you might ask, why would you want to be <laughs> at the moment? <laughs> you look at poor Gil, who I think is doing an outstanding job. But um, no, I, I think um, you know one of the great things about sport, uh, and one of the great things it teaches you for life, is it teaches you to stay in the moment. And this is not a cliche, but it's just to, you know, it's ball by ball, it's play by play, it's quarter by quarter. You just can't get too far ahead of yourself. Yeah, I love what I do. I, I love the, I love the fact I've got a business to run, and but I've got a contest every week, and you can you can put your club to the test every week, and and when you're lucky enough to win a premiership, is you know it's intoxicating. Um, you know, I'm very focused. You know, we've got a lot of catching up to do still, and um, um, with the Carltons and, and the Essendons who, who sit on 16 premierships, so. That really motivates me. Um, it's a very purposeful job, um, being at a club. Um, and if I do that well, what will be will be. Um, but that's off my radar for the time being. I do get that. I, I just can't help but think that it'd be a pretty good apprenticeship, a CEO who's reinvented a club, one, well, at least two, and who knows by by that stage. And, and you've also spent that time as, um, as boss of the Players Association. It's hard to think of a better apprenticeship. Yeah. Um, to, to head up the AFL? Yeah, but I will say, Nick, it's, um, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have a, a wonderful team of people and, uh, and uh, um, you know, who make me perhaps look better than what I really am. Um, and so, um, uh, and, you know, you can never take that for granted as well. Good stuff. Brendan, I was really looking forward to having a chat today and, uh, and I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Thanks for joining us on the Playmakers Playbook. Pleasure, Nick. My pleasure. All the best. Brendan Gale on this week's Playmakers Playbook and it will be Richmond getting the stalled AFL season back underway in a blockbuster against Collingwood on Thursday, June 11. The Tigers' hunt for a third premiership in four years continues. The Playmakers Playbook is brought to you by BuildCorp, where great teams are built on shared values. It's available wherever you get your favourite podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Deezer. Make sure you subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And as always, if you like what you've heard today, give us a rating on iTunes or simply tell a friend. I look forward to your company next week on the Playmakers Playbook. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.